0: Well, it is really, really good to be with you. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and find 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 is uh, where we're going to be today. And I just want to uh, welcome those of you that may be joining us online, wherever you may be tuning in from, as well as everybody gathered across all of our campuses. And as you're finding that passage, uh, I've just got a couple of things to announce and celebrate uh, that's uh, kind of campus-wide. First of all, I just want you to know that um, here very, very soon... Three of our campuses, uh, we're going to be changing the names of those campuses to better reflect the geographic location that they are in and to kind of pave the way for future campuses we might launch, you know, Lord willing. So I just wanted you all to be aware of this, that um, our north campus, we're going to be changing the name of that campus to the Carmel campus. Um, Our northeast campus, which is going to be launching next year, we'll change that to Fisher's And then West, we're going to change that uh, to Plainfield. I just want to go ahead and just acknowledge our West crowd right now today. And I just want to formally apologize to you for this name change. Because I know uh, so many of you love saying West is best. (laughs) And now you can't say that anymore. And I don't really know know, what rhymes with Plainfield. But, you know. (laughs) Good luck with that, right? So anyway, I just want you to know uh, those three campuses, uh, name change, our Northwest Campus, Midtown and Downtown, we keep those names uh, the same. uh, But there's a whole set of reasons why we're changing the names of those three campuses to kind of set us up for the future. So I just want you to be aware of it. The other thing I want you to know is that we have hired a campus pastor for our Fishers campus, which is going to be launching uh, the first part of 2024. So uh, Chad and Katie Lunsford, I think we've got a picture of them and their family. They're going to be uh, launching that campus and uh, Chad and Katie today are actually at the Carmel campus, and they're going to be in the lobby after the service. And so if you happen to be there, go up, introduce yourself, welcome them to our church, encourage them. If you'd like to, if you have any interest at all in the Fishers campus, they are who to talk to. If you know somebody that does, uh, if uh, you are not there today, you can go to tpcc.org Fishers and get all that information. And then uh, one last thing I want you to be aware of, uh, and this is related to our Midtown crew. Guys, uh, we have started construction on your permanent home for Midtown. And so we will be moving you into that uh, the first half of 2024. So lots to be excited about. God is on the move. And if you're just now joining us, we are in this message series called Love and War. We're walking through this short little epistle. An epistle is just a fancy word for letter. Um, that is at the end of your New Testament called 1 John. And I said this a couple of weeks ago in setting up this series. That most of the epistles in the New Testament, they are named for the geographic region that they were written to. What I mean by that is Ephesians it's called Ephesians because it was written to the church in Ephesus. Galatians is called Galatians because it was written to the church in Galatia. But here we've got uh, an epistle that doesn't have a geographic name attached to it. And I think that part of the reason why is because John writes this generally to the church at large. He knew that all Christians everywhere across all time including us today we would need what it is that he is writing and he is writing two primary things that we all need. John writes to give us assurance assurance that we are loved assurance of salvation and he writes to bring conviction. I said this a couple of weeks ago that there are some verses in 1 John, you read it, and in the same sentence, he offers us this incredible assurance as well as conviction. And both of those things, like the tension between assurance and conviction, is what brings about transformation. That's actually one of the characteristics of John's writing, both in his epistles and in his gospel, is that John will often take two contrast, or they seem contrasting, these terms, and he'll kind of set them up. He'll use them together. And so some examples of this would be sin and holiness, acceptance and forgiveness. Uh, two of John's favorites are light and darkness. And that's why we are calling this series Love and War John is the love disciple. He describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved. He's the guy who wrote John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And yet at the same time he wants us to know that we are all in a war. And you cannot win a war you're not aware of. And there is a spiritual element to this war, the principalities and powers of darkness in this present age. There is the tangible war that is in front of us that we see every single day. And then there is the internal war that goes on in our bodies, that goes on in our minds and in our conscience. And, and Paul, or John wants us to know that we cannot win a war we're not aware of. And what I want you to get a picture of is that by the time he writes this epistle, like he's an old man, he's seen a lot in his life, he's been through a lot of battles of his own, and now he writes to us to give us assurance and conviction to face our own battles. Now, as we come to 1 John chapter two, we're actually just gonna study together three little verses, uh, verses 15 through 17. Uh, But don't worry, I'm gonna preach just as long, all right? So, you know, just, you know, I could tell you're worried. So 1 John chapter two, verses 15 through 17. Let me just go ahead and and say this. Uh, It's gonna take me a little while to set the table before we get in the text. I just wanna go ahead and acknowledge that. So if you're going, man, it it seems like he's taking a long time to get into the text. The reason why is because It's taken me a long time to get into the text. And I wanna just kind of set the table here. Um, But uh, quite possibly these three verses that we're gonna look at and study together today are some of the most misunderstood passages in all of the Bible. Not because they're hard to understand. Like when we read this, I, I don't think it's like super hard to understand. It is super hard to know how to apply these three verses. Now, I want to teach these three verses through two different sets of lenses. I want to go ahead and acknowledge right now that there may be somebody watching this, listening to this today, whether you're here physically or you're tuning in virtually online, and uh, for lack of a better term, uh, you would just you know, call yourself a non-Christian, like you're uh, outside of the line of faith, like you don't know that you believe in God, you don't know that you can trust the Bible, but you're listening, like you're open, you're, you're on a spiritual journey, maybe somebody invited you, but you would put yourself in the category of non-Christian. And I want to teach this passage through that set of lenses. And then I also want to teach this passage through the set of lenses of of a Christian. Like you have responded to Jesus saved by grace through faith. Now you're in process making progress and and reading this passage through those sets of lenses as well. And whether you would call yourself a non-Christian or a Christian, it is easy to misapply... What John writes today, and when we do, it has big implications for each. If you're a non-Christian, it might keep you from giving your life to Jesus even more. If you're a Christian, what it might do is it might alienate you or cause you to maybe let go of some of your convictions in the name of wanting to reach people. So the implications are really, really huge. Um, Many of you know this, that uh, if you've been in our church for a while, uh, roughly a little over 20 years ago, it's 2001, uh, Lindsay and I moved to Northern California to uh, start a brand new church. And we were in our mid-20s. We moved in, it was an area right outside of Sacramento. It was a parachute drop, like we dropped into this community. We didn't know anybody. And we got an apartment and we just started meeting people. And we started a Bible study in our apartment. And then out of that Bible study, uh, we rented a movie theater and we started a church. One of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And I remember we had moved to California. We'd been there about three months, didn't know anybody. So we're just praying for friends, you know. And uh, our apartment complex had a swimming pool and a hot tub. And so one night we went out to the hot tub. We were just kind of hanging out there talking. And this other couple from the apartment complex walked up. We'd never met them before. They were roughly about our age, maybe a little bit older. And um, they, they got in the, you know, the hot tub with us and we introduced ourselves. And, and we were having this great conversation with them. And we thought, you know, maybe they might be, Friends, you know, and and we're gonna uh, talking to them, and uh, and then uh, he uh, asked me uh, what could potentially be the friendship ending question. He said, uh, you know, what what do you do? Always a loaded question for me as a pastor, and, and I'm not ashamed of it, but but I just know it's kind of tricky ground. and So I just looked back at him and and I just said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor, and he's like, oh, really? And I said, yeah, and you know, we we just moved here and and we're gonna be starting a a church. And uh, I kid you not, immediately, um, his wife got very, very uncomfortable and she got out of the hot tub, dried off and left. And so then I said, well, what do you do for a living? And he said, well, I own and operate a book and music store that sells the kinds of things that you Christians hate. And that was Lindsey's cue to get up out of the hot tub and dry off. (laughs) And leave. All right, so, so he and I are just kind of left, you know, in there uh, talking and, and uh, just his whole body language changed. And it was very, very clear that he had had some experiences. And he told me a few of these, just some experiences in his past with Christians and with the church that had sort of put him on the defensive. And so his basic kind of view of Christians and Christianity was that what we were about was what we were against. And it just kind of set us up to kind of have this like sort of, you know, um, tense conversation. So that's that one side of it. Then the other side of it is, if you're a Christian kind of approaching the world, it's just really essentially this question. How do we hold on to our convictions? How do we remain orthodox in our beliefs and yet at the same time winsome in this world, to be on mission. Remember the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. We are to be on mission in this world. Like we are not just saved for ourselves. We're not just like the frozen chosen, but we are on mission with God to reach as many people as possible. How do we do that in a winsome way without watering down Orthodox faith or our convictions? Like, I don't care who you are. Like that is a tension to manage. So regardless of where you might be in either of those two groups, the th- one thing that we all have in common, regardless of a uh, system of belief or lifestyle choices, is that we are all in earthly human bodies, you know, you know, kind of stuck on this like world here. And we're sort of saturated in this world. And as we look out across this world, which God created, by the way, We can see that there is so much to love about it. There's so much that we love in the world and we're commanded in the scriptures to love the world and to have compassion upon it. And at the exact same time, there is so much to guard against. Here's the thing is that the brokenness and the beauty of our world are intertwined. And every day I can get up and I can look out and I can see glimpses of heaven in this world every day. And I I know the promise that God created this world and he's coming back to redeem and to restore this world. We call this the new heaven and the new earth. Therefore, we love it and we have compassion on it. I see glimpses of heaven every day. And I also see evidences of hell every day. And you do too. So this just brings up all kinds of questions. It's all kinds of questions of how do we live out our faith? Like how do we uh, draw a line between personal enjoyment and when does it cross the line into sin? How are we to live in this beautiful yet broken world without coming across uh, as to, like my friend in the hot tub, you know, uh, judgmental um, or condescending uh, or holier than thou? When you know just as much as I do, whether you call yourself a Christian, you've been walking with Jesus 25 years or for five minutes, we still have sin struggles. So where do we call people out of sin and where do we confess our own sin? Uh, when we look at the culture around us, um, you know, it's like, uh, what should a Christian's response be to, to Target? You know, should we boycott Target? Should we shop there? What, what should our response be in that? Um, it's Pride Month. Like this is right up in our face. So, so how should we respond? What should a Christian's response be? And you know, should it be all the way over to just love and affirm everything that everybody does, uh, or should we hold on to our convictions and lovingly engage? Like, what should our response be in all of that? Uh, can a pastor, hypothetically here, can a pastor get a tattoo? Like, you know, it's like just. Well, what if he got it in the Holy Land? Does that kind of cancel it out? It's like, so. so so where, where are, where's the line on all of it? And for some of you, this message is gonna drive you crazy because you want like these nice, clean, easy categories. And it's not to say that we can't do that. And I'm gonna try to be very, very clear about orthodox faith and conviction and what the gospel message is and isn't. And yet at the same time, there is some tension here for us to kind of manage. First Timothy Chapter 4, like if you read the entirety of that chapter, says that no created thing is bad, but our use of it makes it bad. And at the very end of it, of that chapter, uh, Paul offers this warning. He goes, hey, keep a close watch on how you live. So this whole tension, these are all questions that are going to fit under the umbrella of these three little verses that John writes in our epistle today. And there's so uh, much at stake. I know so many people, their primary barrier to coming to Jesus is their experience with Christians and churches that have been condemning and judgmental of them. And so it's keeping them from coming to faith. And then on the other hand, I've known lots and lots of Christians that in the name of trying to build bridges and love people where they are, they end up falling away from orthodox faith and eventually from Jesus. Jesus. So here's a couple of tensions that we need to be aware of. Tension number one is what we might just call legalistic Christianity. Legalistic Christianity, if I could define it, is, uh, yeah, yeah, we're saved by grace and. And there should be no and. It's like we're saved by grace through the finished work of Jesus, but oftentimes we want to, it seems too good to be true, so we want to add something to it. So we're saved by grace and our morals. We're saved by grace and our behavior. We're saved by grace and a Bible study or our generosity or our politics. We're saved by grace and. And so we acknowledge our primary need for a savior, but then we're really really not uh, living that way or it's not getting translated that way. And I think maybe for those of us that are kind of wired up maybe a little bit more as perfectionists or we're high justice people. Or maybe you're the kind of person where there is no gray. It's either black or white. This can be particular, particularly kind of challenging for us. And uh, legalistic Christianity is toxic to the gospel. Because the gospel message, guys, is it is a standing that we have made possible through Jesus, not an achievement that we earn super quiet in here. That's, that's, that's clap worthy right there, all right? And if you're taking notes at all, that you write that down, that your faith, like the gospel message is a standing, not an achievement. And what this does is it guards us from one of two extremes. If you, if you start, um, the longer that you follow Jesus, the more susceptible you can be to legalistic Christianity. And I speak as somebody who at times wrestles with it. We just want to add to to faith, and it will inevitably lead to one of two conclusions. It will either lead to burnout or spiritual pride. There is no way that you can fulfill all of the righteous requirements that God um, requires of us. Uh, That would actually be the law. You can find it in the Old Testament. It's quite extensive. Um, Most of the time we kind of boil it down to the top ten, but it goes way beyond that. And Jesus even said, like, okay, the law was not designed for you and me to fulfill. It's impossible. Jesus said, if you break the law, even in one place, you're guilty of breaking it all of it. And that is just a statement to say, there's no way that you can fulfill it all. So what is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is two things, primarily. The purpose of a law is a picture, and it is a mirror. It is a picture of the holiness of God to help us to understand how far short we fall. And it is a mirror for us to recognize our need for a Savior. And so if you're trying to justify yourself through your behavior, it'll lead to tremendous cynicism and burnout because you'll never ever get there. Or here's what oftentimes many of us do is uh, we have a tendency to look around at the people immediately, you know, kind of in our circle and we grade on a curve. And we say, well, I'm not as good as some, but I'm not as bad as most. You know, so, you know, and then we kind of justify ourselves that way. And uh, what we end up doing is uh, we're like that pharisee in the new testament says god thank you that i'm not like that man thank you that i'm not like those people and we become modern day pharisees here's tension number two progressive christianity so maybe your thing isn't falling into legalism maybe your thing is you're becoming too influenced by the culture around us and progressive christianity just refuses to call anything sin and it's like, it's not a sin if you're following your heart, being true to yourself and not hurting anyone. And this was the problem that had infiltrated the church in Corinth and what Paul writes so extensively to combat. And it's still a problem today. And so it's this idea of like, well, in the name of trying to reach people for Jesus, we're not gonna call that a sin, but, but what, what we need to do is properly define sin. Going back to 1 Timothy four, where it says no created thing is bad. It's the use of it that makes it bad. So all sin is, is taking a good created thing and making it ultimate. It's a shortcut to fulfillment because we don't trust that God will fulfill us. So you take the Ten Commandments, you take any sin that's out there, you could boil it down primarily to these three big categories, um, sex, money, and power. Let's just use another word for power, accomplishment. So sex, money, and accomplishment. And then uh, really what it is is recognizing that God is the author. He's the creator of all three of those things. Uh, Those things in and of themselves in their proper context are not bad. It's when we make them ultimate. It's Romans 1, worshiping created things over creator God. It's a shortcut to fulfillment. And so what we need to understand is that God is the designer and the author of those things. And therefore, he knows how they best operate. He knows how to maintain them. And he's actually given us an instruction manual for how to do so. So um, back at uh, Christmas, I bought my wife this um, really sophisticated Italian coffee maker. I bought it for her, but I partake as well. And... um, (laughs) So it's just really, it's a really, it's actually easy to use, but it's a very complicated system. And it's actually a little intimidating at first. Like it's this big like white box and there's all these like electronic things. You just basically wake up in the morning, hit a little button and it'll make you a latte. It'll make you a cappuccino. And it, it's a, you just make sure that the, you know, the top hatch has enough coffee beans in it. It's incredible. Like low maintenance, we don't have to clean out like the little, you know, coffee maker thing every day. It's was incredible. But here's the thing. We used it for about three months. Didn't touch the thing. Like did no maintenance on it. And about three months in, it started making really funny noises. And we were like, did you read the instruction manual? No, I didn't read it. And so we ended up reading it and recognized there's some things you had to do to maintain it. There's some things you had to do to properly operate it. It needed to be, that little, you know, thing needed to be cleaned out like, you know, once a week. And then every month or so, it needed a full-on cleaning. But we were using it in such a way that it was going to lead it to dysfunction, That's maybe one of the best ways that I can think of when it comes to what the Bible calls sin, whether it's uh, a sexual sin, whether it's sin around money or power or accomplishment is we're just disregarding the designers, you know, instruction manual for it. And to recognize that God has created these things for our uh, joy and his glory. But when we don't trust that his way is best for us, we kind of take a shortcut to it and that is called sin. So we don't call people sin out because we've moved beyond it and now we're looking down at their sin. That's what can create an unnecessary barrier for people. No, uh, you've heard of the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. And that is not biblical. And we need to change it to love the sinner, hate my own sin. And invite them to do the same not because we have moved beyond our sin, but because we are in just as much desperate need of the grace of God as anyone else. And so the the most loving thing that you can do is to help someone see God's best for them rather than to just agree in the direction that they are already going. I, I know that people in my life, the ones that love me the most, the ones that just agree with everything that I'm doing, they want something. The ones that love me enough to stand in the way, and stand up and are courageous enough to actually call me out on my junk, but, but they're wise enough and loving enough to do it with grace, I know that they're the ones that really love me. You guys have heard me say this before. All truth and no grace I can't hear you but all grace and no truth like it won't change me and the gospel message is grace and truth and those things in tension and for some of you you have got to self-apply right now like some of you you got to re- a self-diagnose here are you the kind of person that leans more towards grace then maybe you need to come back a little bit more towards truth. You're the kind of person that leans more towards truth. Then maybe you need to kind of come back uh, towards grace. And Jesus is the embodiment of both. See, um, some of you are wondering what this rope is behind me. Uh, but this is kind of the tug of war of, of uh, every single one of us. Like right now in our lives, some of us are kind of wrestling with, maybe we're kind of, there's this like tug of war with moralism. That we are saved by grace and our, our good behavior. But see, this is not the gospel message. You, you drive too far, you're falling outside the scope of the gospel message of grace and truth. And others of us, it's a tug of war this way towards, towards hedonism. And we obviously know that Christianity is not hedonism, but it's all, it also can't be moralism. And there is just going to be this tension in all of our lives. And so, I think that's the record for the longest setup ever to get into the text. All right, so I just want to acknowledge that. So it's with that entire setup, let me read these three verses. Here's what John writes today. Verse 15. Do not love this world, nor the things that it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and Pride in our achievements and possessions. Sex, money, power. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away. It's another way to say this is all temporary. Along with everything else that people crave or desire. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Uh, Not hard to understand. Super hard to know how to apply. How do we apply it? How do you apply this as a non-Christian? What's your view of Christianity as you read this? It could be very, very easy to misapply. You you read that and you're like, oh, Christians are supposed to hate the world. That's not what he says. On the other side, it's Christians we are like, well, I'm not supposed to enjoy anything in this world. I'm supposed to just call people out on their, that's not exactly what he says. So let me just go ahead and kind of acknowledge here that this can be a little bit confusing to hear John say we're not to love the world. Why? Because isn't this the same guy that wrote John 3.16? For God so loved the world. You're like, John, have you changed your mind? John, did you hit your head? You know, which is it? Are we to love the world? Are we to not love the world? See, in order to understand this passage accurately and apply it effectively, we need to understand what John means by the word love and what he means by the term world specifically. And even drawing the distinction between world and worldliness. This is really so crucial. You know that words can be used in um, different senses. We all know that. So like if I say to you, you know, I love my wife and kids. And then right after that I say, I love pizza. You know that I'm using the word in a different sense. I don't love pizza with the same weight that I love my wife and kids. Kind of reminds me, and and the way that we use words are super important. Otherwise, it can lead to massive misunderstanding. Reminds me of that Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. You remember that old cartoon? And uh, Calvin is pretending like he's in a fighter plane and Hobbes is behind him, you know, uh, being the gunman. And uh, he's the gunner. And and he says, enemy planes at two o'clock. And Calvin's like, got it. What do we do till then? And uh, (laughs) give it a minute. It'll sink in. All right. So, (laughs) So the way that we use words is like really, really important. It's critical to understand. So what does John mean by love the world? Uh, we know that what John writes in other places in scripture and throughout the entire teaching of scripture that we are to love the world. John 3:16, for God so loved the world. The verse that comes right after that in verse 17 doesn't get as much play. God did not send his son into the world to condemn, but to save. So if God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn, then it's not our job to condemn either, but that doesn't mean that we let go of orthodox faith or our convictions. What does it mean to love the world? Well, we are to primarily recognize first and foremost that God is the creator of this world, and there's so much in this world to love, that God has sent Jesus to ransom and redeem, that God has created every person in his image. Therefore, that means that there isn't another person that you've locked eyes with, whether they are a different generation, whether they have different politics, whether they see the world uh, very differently from you, they are still uh, uh, worthy of your dignity, value, and respect because they have the Imago Dei of God implanted within them. This has massive implications for how we treat one another and talk to one another regardless of our differences. In Genesis, when God created the world, he prayed a prayer of benediction over the created world. Remember the benediction God prayed? He says, this is good. It is so good. Um, The ultimate compliment that God could pay our human body is that he sent Jesus wrapped in one. There is no other belief system out there in which the divine wraps themselves in human flesh but Jesus did. When Jesus was crucified and he was placed in a tomb, he didn't say finally I can be done with that filthy body and you know he comes back, you know, in some different state. No, he actually wrapped himself in that restored, resurrected, redeemed body. He enters our material world and he will redeem it. He loves it so much. And so should we. Jesus looked upon the people, how? Uh, Not with disdain, but in compassion as sheep without a shepherd. And so should we. The prayer on our lips should be, God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. So what does John mean by verse 17? Look at it one more time. He says, do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. That's key to understanding how he means the term. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Uh, John is describing worldliness. And that's different than world. So we look at the world as sheep without a shepherd. We have compassion. We're on mission with God to reach people. And then there's worldliness. Here's the definition of worldliness. A system of thinking in which the material world and all that it offers me is all that there is. Therefore, it becomes ultimate in value. And both the hedonist and the moralist can be guilty of worldliness. Here's how the hedonist is guilty of it. The hedonist says, well, what I see, feel, taste, touch, and experience is all there is. And so uh, I'm gonna live it up. I'm just gonna take this shortcut to fulfillment because I don't believe that uh, God will come through on what uh, he says he will do. And so this is what John is saying we should not love. However, the moralist does this as well. The moralist says, I believe in God, But really when it comes down to when the rubber meets the road, like how I live out my faith, doesn't really seem that way. I'm still placing my faith, my hope, in functional saviors. And so we're saved by grace through faith, but but because we're a moralist, then we've got the functional savior of our bank account. How do you know your bank accounts become your functional savior? When it drops below that imaginary amount that you start to panic. That's worship. You're saying, well, I've got to have enough to actually be okay. How do you know? Well, um, one of the reasons why politics are so divisive in our country is because it's our primary religion, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. Like if you find yourself getting just so worked up over it, it's because somebody's messing with your functional savior or your achievements or your fulfillment. And instead of making the gospel of grace the primary thing, a moralist uses the gospel of grace as the backstop. And we say, well, it's there. Um, So if I strike out, you know, it's there, but I'm swinging at this life with everything else I've got. And John would say, that's worldliness too. So someone who is trying to satisfy themselves through hedonism will see this world only as ultimate. Somebody who's trying to justify themselves through moralism will see this world only as wicked. And this is why the hedonist and the moralist both need Jesus. Both need to be saved because both make the world ultimate. Guys, you can be religious and still be lost. This also explains, and I know there's a number of you, uh, if, if let me speak to the non-Christian here. I've heard this from so many that uh, one of the reasons it keeps you from faith is because you've seen so many Christians that live a lifestyle that doesn't match what they say they believe. And you would say it this way, well, I know a lot of people that, aren't, that are uh, not Christians, but they are more moral than many Christians I know. And you're like, that keeps me from faith. And I just want you to know that uh, the gospel message is th- explains that. <laughs> the gospel message isn't that we are saved by God and have this right standing because we're more moral. The gospel of grace is that we're saved by grace, through Jesus, and because we are sinners, we are never as good as our accurate theology should make us. But because, uh, because everybody's been made in the image of God, that also means that if you're not a Christian, you are not as bad as your flawed theology makes you. Because Christianity is not so much what we do say and believe as much as it is what God says about us. It is a standing, not an achievement. So does that mean that we, uh, there's a faint clap over here. You, that, that's something you don't know whether to clap of that or not, because you're like, I don't know what you just said. And so I'm not trying to throw orthodoxy out the window. I'm not trying to throw convictions out the window. I'm saying that, we're, that it's a standing before God. God. Jesus transfers his righteousness into us. And now because of that right standing, we live our lives out of that as a response, not to achieve, but as an act of worship. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. So that explains why a lot of non-Christians may be more moral than a lot of Christians, you know, because there's a lot of Christians who've got a lot of stuff that needs cleaned up and we are in process. And now here's the posture of a Christian. It's not, you know, I'm gonna condemn you and judge you because you don't live like me. Now the posture of a Christian should be, and it is a miracle that God has received me. I'm saved by grace through faith. It is a miracle and you can have this miracle too. I am just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. So why does John Why does John say that we shouldn't be worldly? Well, primarily in a nutshell, this world is fading away. It's passing away. At one time Jesus kind of addressed all of the worldly worries and concerns that are on our minds in Matthew chapter six. I mean, Jesus knows. He, he knows what it is we're wrestling with. And, and he, he writes these words. He, he says, "Don't worry about what you will eat, drink or wear." He says the pagans run after those things. That's another way of saying they make them ultimate. But your heavenly father knows you need them. And then he says these words in verse 33. But seek what? First. That's an order thing. He goes seek first, make it primary, his kingdom. So as a Christian, should, our primary aim, we'll do it imperfectly, but our primary aim to make ultimate is God's kingdom and his righteousness, not ours. And then he says, all these things will be given to you as well. Guys, that's it. That's it. He says, I want you to seek first my kingdom. I want you to have a proper understanding of who you are and who I am and who the world is. And I want you to see the world through the lens of his kingdom and righteousness and and not through the lens of sin, which is a shortcut to fulfillment on this temporary earth because you don't trust that God will provide it. C.S. Lewis famously said this. He goes, man, if you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. You aim at earth and you'll get neither. And then John goes on to explain this in verse 17, uh, why uh, we should not make the world ultimate. It's just so, so practical. He goes, this world is fading away, it's temporary. Those desires that you get wrapped up in, that thing that you think you need to find fulfillment, it's fading away, it is temporary, it is not eternal. Along with everything that people crave or desire. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. It's just another way of saying don't trust the temporary to bring a permanent sense of fulfillment. It is a temporary thirst. Don't try to quench it with the temporary solution. See, the term literally means craving literally means an over desire for something that is good. So uh, we can take any example. Uh, There is nothing wrong with food. Eating to live is great, but we all know living to eat is not. what, What happens when you're living to eat? Well, you're making it ultimate. There is nothing wrong with money or earning money or making money. Um, Some of you are really, really gifted at that. Like there's nothing, like the money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of it, which is another way of saying making it ultimate. So earning to live, nothing wrong with that. Living to earn, a little bit different different thing. There is nothing wrong with sex the way that God has designed it. Remember, he's the creator of it. He he offers us this owner's manual for it within. It is, here's why uh, sex is a big deal to God. Because it reflects the covenant relationship that he makes with his people. And so he says, uh, save it between a man and a woman within the confines of marriage. And by the way, it is a really, really good thing. And God invented it. He invented the mechanics of it. He invented the pleasure of it. He didn't give enough credit for that. God gets kind of blamed for being a prude about this. And he's like, hey, wait a second, guys, I designed it. I made it. Let's just thank God right now. God, thank you so much for that gift. That's an incredible gift. There's nothing wrong with it, but when we take that desire and we make it ultimate, how do we do that? We make it part of our identity. We're like, oh no, no, I've got I've to chase after, I've got to fulfill it every time I have the urge or I'm not fulfilled if I'm not having it or I'm using it to medicate an emptiness inside. We're misusing it. G.K. Chesterton said this, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. There is a spiritual element to it. Uh, lust literally means an over-desire for something that is good. So to, to, to live to eat, to live for sex, to live for money. That's, that's worldliness. It's, it's another way of saying I don't trust God to come through on what he said he would come through for. So I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. I'll give you one last C.S. Lewis quote. He said this as it relates to happiness. He says, "God." cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself. It is not there. There is no such thing. And see, only when you see this world from the perspective of eternity will you see it rightly. And John says, everything that we see, everything that we touch, everything that we experience, it has been created by God, it is good, but it is fading away. It is temporary. So don't allow the temporary to rob you Of the eternal. When all else fades away make sure that your feet are standing on solid ground. There's a lady by the name of uh, Peggy Noonan and she wrote this article in Forbes magazine uh, decades ago and I I really don't know where she is faith-wise but she writes something so insightful here. She says, I think we've lost the old knowledge that happiness is overrated. That in a way, life is overrated. Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood this to be the solitary, poor, nasty, short one. We are the first generation that actually expected to find happiness here on earth. And our search for it has actually caused such unhappiness. The reason, if you do not believe in another higher world, you believe this is your only chance at happiness then you're not disappointed when the world doesn't give you a measure of its riches. You are in despair. For whenever I uh, take my family to the beach in the summer, have you ever uh, walked into the ocean about ankle deep and you just stand there and the sand is flush under your feet, you're on relatively level ground. But as the waves wash in and wash back out, what happens? Well, the sand around the edges of your feet begins to wash away, and all you're doing is standing there and the ground begins to be somewhat unstable. And this is just the image that comes to my mind as I think about just an over-focus, whether the side of the rope is more on the hedonist side or the moralist side, it's when we begin to focus too much on what is right in front of us. Really what John is trying to do is he's trying to lift our heads up to the eternal. Guys, what will be true about your life five million years from now? Like, live for that. What, what will be true, what will remain true about my life when all of this gives out and fades away? See, the truth is not in a set of beliefs. The truth is not in a set of behaviors. The truth is not in a set of feelings or propositions. The truth is in a person and his name is Jesus. And today what he is offering is this great exchange. You just simply confess your sin and you give your sinfulness over to him and then he transfers his righteousness into your account. And it is from that standing that then we begin to operate out of that. And the truth of the gospel says, you don't have to give way to hedonism and you don't have to rely on moralism. Regardless of who you are, you just come. You just come. How does this practically get fleshed out in our lives as we relate to a culture around us that can be so hostile to the things of God? Well, the way of Jesus. Jesus went on a rescue mission to ransom and redeem and restore corrupt tax collectors in a tree and adulterous women who hung out at wells. And he looked at them with dignity and respect and he honored them and he had compassion and he loved them. And then what did he say as he departed from them? Go and sin no more. Guys, it is possible to do both. This world will tell you, you cannot, but Jesus did and we must. And it is the invitation that is open to all. And so today we wanna do that. Right now, regardless of whether you would fall into that first camp of non-Christian or that other camp campus Christian, if you're a non-Christian, maybe today, you're ready to respond to that gospel. To have Jesus become your mediator and advocate before a holy God. And if you're a Christian who's been relying too much on moralism, that you would come back to the heart of the gospel message to recognize it's not because of anything that you can do or do do, it is what Jesus has done on your behalf so it is with that prayer on our lips we pray father we live in a contentious divisive hostile broken sinful world that we are all a part of and so god today i pray that we would understand what the heart of the gospel message is so that we don't get tripped up or confused by all of the mixed messages we get on a daily basis through our screens keep our eyes fixed upon you god God, right now, if maybe some of us are allowing the the rope to get tugged a little too far towards the hedonistic side, the self-indulgent side, because we honestly don't take you, we don't trust you, we don't take you enough at your word. God, maybe we bring that back to the center today. Maybe for others of us, we're allowing the rope to go a little too far to the moralist side, we're leaning too much on our behaviors and our morals and not enough upon the person of Jesus. May we bring that back into the center and we know that there is a watching world that is looking at us and we are ambassadors of you. So God, help us to live out of that standing that Jesus died for us to have. We're so grateful. We ask this in Jesus' name.